Hi, everyone. Welcome to an episode of Everything is Canon, a Cinelinks podcast, a podcast where we invite marginalized authors from all genres onto the show to discuss their latest books and novels, as well as just about anything else that comes to mind. I'm your host, Steve Dunk, and thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to reach me, there are several ways to do so, but the best way is to email me at steve at cinelinks.com, or you can always find me on Twitter, of course, at stevedunk5 or at everythingcanon. And so, without further ado, let's get the show on the road and meet today's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show and a new season of Everything is Canon. As is always the case, we will continue to encourage supporting authors and stories that affirm the lives of people other than ourselves each time we either engage in a conversation, whether it be online or face-to-face, or each time we participate in the market with our purchasing choices. And my current rage right now is COVID ableism. I'm tired of hearing this. We've all heard it. You've probably heard it. Quote, Omicron only has minor symptoms. Don't worry about it. Or... I don't know anyone that's died from it. So what's the big deal? You know what? We need to stop that shit. I'm glad you're super tough. Understand that even though we're all going through the same pandemic, we are not all having the same experience. So let's please, for the love of fucking God, employ some empathy uh, once and for all. Rant officially over. Okay. JL was born in Houston, Texas as a first-generation college student with a bachelor's in journalism and MA in educational administration and human development, an advocate for marginalized voices in both publishing and her community. Her passion for empowering youth dates back to her first career in education. She's worked as a preschool director, middle school teacher, and high school creative writing mentor. In her spare time, she volunteers at alternative school, uh, provides feedback for aspiring writers' loves uh, on her three littles, and cooks up dishes true to her Texas and Louisiana roots. Her debut book, last year's Wings of Ebony, was a New York Times and indie bestseller, but she's back to talk about its sequel, Ashes of Gold, which is described as, in the heart-pounding conclusion to the Wings of Ebony duology, Rue makes her final stand to reclaim her people's stolen magic. She's true to her word. Please welcome back to the show, JL. Hi, Jay. Hi. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Yes, you kept your word. Last year, I said two things would happen. You'd be a huge megastar author and you wouldn't have time for little old me. So thank you for coming back. <laughs> One of those things is true. You are a superstar, huge author now. And I'm just, like, you're just, uh, I don't even care. Yeah, Everyone knows you're one of my favorite people. And I'm so happy the past year to see you, you know, turn into this, uh, this author of the people, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, that is very kind. I promise you I'm very just regular schmegular, but thank you. <laughs> In 2022, one of my goals is to learn how to take compliments instead of not knowing how to. So I feel like at 36, I should probably learn how to take a I don't. I'm, <laughs> thank I'm, you, Steve. I've got a few years on you and I still don't take them very well. So it's fine. <laughs> it's just one of those, it's one of those it's, things. Yeah. Um, that's a, uh, couple things in your bio there, actually, a couple things I want to talk about the cooking we're going to talk about here in a second. But one of the things I do love about you is, you know, you, uh, you're such a pay it forward type of person, pay it back type of person, right? You're so you're such a huge community person. Um, and I love that about you. And obviously, that comes through with these books. Um, it, you know, you talked about volunteering at alternative schools. I got to imagine you don't have much time to do that anymore. But um do you still find the time to do that? Is it, is it, cause I know it's important to you. Yeah. I, so no, I haven't been able to, I mean, because of COVID that's changed a lot. Right. Of course. I haven't yeah. been able to volunteer at schools like period. Um, yeah. I've done some school visits, 
but those are a little different and those are um, virtual. So, but I do try to volunteer as much as I can just in the writing community, mentoring other authors. Uh, my bandwidth is thinning in a good way. What I mean by that is um, another one of the things that I'm working on this year is really setting better work-life boundaries. I don't want work to be my life. I want work to be a part of my life. So I'm working on um, just keeping work in its proper perspective. And mm-hmm. just if the past two years have made me want anything more, it's to just pour into the things that are important to me. And work is certainly important to me, but my children and my family and my community are, are more so. Um, and so I'm trying to, to strike a better balance. So I have cut back um, some because of the pandemic and some just because I don't have as much time. I also have nine contracted books out there or coming. So <laughs> not so all those are announced, but because I have nine, but I mean, this is what the second one coming into the world. Yeah, there are seven more <laughs> on their way. So I just have a lot of work keeping me busy, but I will always find in between moments to um, help aspiring authors um, and work with teens as, as much as I can. Yeah. I know it's important to you and it's, it's such a cool thing. And, and, it, it comes comes through in your books, the the two uh, that I've read, anyways, um, Wings of, and Ashes. Um, it comes through even quite, you know, purposely and directly in in, <laughs> in, in a big way too. In one of the books, um, we won't talk too much about that, but uh, yeah, it is a, it is a challenging time for stuff like that, isn't it? I was because I'm a big uh, volunteer person myself. I do a lot of volunteer work in my in my area. And I haven't mm-hmm. been able, and I just haven't been able to do it for a lot of the reasons you just listed, not because I have nine books, but, <laughs> right, but um, just pandemic and, and other types of stressors. Right. And, and um, yeah, it, it, when you, it, it sucks when it's something you really enjoy doing, isn't it? And that could be anything, but you know, volunteer work in particular, because it's so necessary, right? People don't need volunteers because they're flush with staff. Right. So right, right. It's, uh, it puts a big strain on, on the entire volunteer network and, uh, yeah, it's tough. And that's one of the things I really look forward to get back uh, to do is uh, being able to volunteer again in person stuff. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah it, it's tricky. Um, we were just talking offline. One of the things, too, that's taken a hit is in-person events. And, and you know, you've, you've, uh, you've got some coming up this year. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll be able to attend them all. And, and uh, you know, we were talking about sort of you being a pandemic-only author at this point. You don't really know any different. But you've been to in-person events yourself. and And... and you have enough author friends. I'm sure you have some idea of what to expect at some point. Um, I'm, I'm more curious about what type of person you were before and what type of person you'll be now, if it's changed as far as, because in-person events, you know, cons, conventions, festivals are, I mean, you've heard of con crud. You know, I was sick as a dog when I got back from Yelfest yeah. just because I was in six airports in five days. Yeah. You know what I mean? So you just get sick either way. I'm curious of what type of person you were before. Like, were you a, a, a hand washing, seat washing, no shake hands, no hugging person already? Or is it going to be tr- tricky for you to be in front of people and not be able to sort of physically sort of connect with people the same way? I don't know how I'm going to handle it. To be like, honest. Are you a like, hugger? I- I am totally a hugger. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I hug strangers. Like complete strangers. Like I am just this super cliche chummy. I could strike up a conversation with somebody in the middle of Walmart and be standing there an hour talking about nothing. Right. Like that's just that's just me. Um 
before, you know, before my kids were really, really young, I do have three children. And so, and at the time my partner um, was in the military. So I was a single mom a lot of the time. So I, I didn't have the luxury of traveling very often because I didn't have childcare and it, we did, we couldn't afford it. So there were a lot of book world things that I just missed out on. So in a, in a very odd way, I was pleasantly surprised by the evolution of book things going virtual. Now, do I want them back in person? Yes. But like DivCon is completely virtual. And I think that's the entire mission of it because of the whole access factor, right. you know, DivCon is, is um, put, put on by DivPit. Um, Beth Phelan heads that up and I'm a part of the um, administrative committee. And it's just, it's amazing to, to see the way that that sort of breaks barriers and brings information to people who don't, aren't able to have access to go to festivals and stuff. So I do think there's some positives that have come out of this very, sorry about that beep. <laughs> My smoke detector needs to be changed. The batteries need to be changed. <laughs> but um, I'm just hopeful that there, there are some positive that is, that's, that has come out of this, this, this time period. And I'm hoping that we can retain some of that for the access alone, because, you know, publishing, I think is an industry that has a lot of access barriers which bleeds into what makes it to shelves i think um i've talked to many authors about that same thing i had had ld lewis on the show we were talking about fiacon and and uh you know if it would ever be a hybrid event it, it'll always have some virtual element she said but it, whether it could ever be in person just doesn't know for all the things you just said the accessibility and that that means financially or geographically for people i mean you know, if you're at a, you've been to conventions, if you're in a room with, you know, a, a good sized room is sort of maybe 500 to a thousand people, right? That's a big room. Um, some, there's smaller rooms as well, but when you're online, I mean, your audience is, is potentially anyone who's got access to the internet, right? So it's quite a thing, isn't it? It is. It's a whole different experience. And I do talk to my, my veteran author friends who miss in person. And I'm dying to experience that. Like, gosh, I just, Steve, I just want to hug a reader. Like, I just want to like squeeze the face. I want to squeeze the face of someone who picked up my book, did not know me from anybody and said, let me read this. And then decided that they liked it so much. They wanted to drive, fly something to a place where I would be just so they could tell me or have it signed like that. Like, because I'm trying to like accept compliments, I just, I'm, I'm not going to like say that I don't like deserve that kind of experience, but it just floors me that your, your work could connect so deeply to a person and move them so deeply that it, it warrants that kind of response. And I just, I just want to hug that person. <laughs> I just want to put them against me and just thank them so much. And I just, I haven't had that. I, I hope to get it. <laughs> but I haven't for, had that yet. Right. For sure, the street team. For sure, hug the street team. Oh um, my gosh, my street team is <laughs> they are so sweet. You know, a couple of them actually live in Houston and oh, I haven't nice. been able to connect uh, with them. But we have plans to once things calm down and gosh, what a day that's gonna be. Like the anticipation has been building for, for years. So it's gonna be fantastic, I'm sure. There's um, a lot of that with with the last couple of years, you know, with authors, whether it's author groups or the fans or street teams, this this anticipation of being able to see each other in the first like again, back to Yalt Fest, because that was my first pandemic trip and a lot of first pandemic trips for a lot of people and authors and just getting to like I remember like when I when Marco Shearer and I finally met in person. <laughs> we just like hugged and oh, we just smart. we just hugged each other it was like 10 minutes, was like 10 minutes of hugging and 
it's it's all those things you think it should would be and of course amazing but like just us like it, this exhale right like there's just this sigh of just like yeah oh, yes this is what it feels like it's just so mm-hmm. yeah and it's just and that's building and you're right like when all these different groups and people and folks and authors and fans get to get together it's going to be just i think you're going to feel that it's going to be a culpable energy shift on the earth <laughs> when when all these groups start getting together and being able to to hug and and cry and and, and laugh and all that stuff it's going to be uh it's going to be amazing um, i agree yes um I want to have a quick chat about a taste of magic before we get into anything uh, wingy or ashy. Um, uh, a very, very quick little note here before we do get going, though. Uh, I, we, we might do a little Wings of Ebony book one spoiler stuff. So here's one warning. I'll give you another one before we get into it, but just a tiny bit, just because I really kind of want to sort of wrap that book up a little bit before we do talk about anything ashes. But, uh, um, but before we go, taste of magic. So... Uh, I know you're a huge food person, right? I don't know. I don't like the word foodie necessarily, but um, I know you're. you're oh, I'm fine with it. Okay, like okay. Eating. Foodie, <laughs> but foodie. When I think of foodie, I think of like these, um, like it's just a. It, to me, I don't know. For some reason, snobby comes to mind. I don't, and I don't. You're not. I don't. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, 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 I'm. I, I like to eat. That's yeah. what I mean. <laughs> okay, that's and okay. That's what I meant. So. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about food because I know it's important to you and there's, there's something really magical about it. Um, like food is, it's really amazing. And I mean, in the general sense, you know, capital F food, it does so many things sort of like objectively, like ubiquitously well, right? Like food, it's great. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful mechanism for storytelling. So you write your first middle grade book is coming out this year. It's called A Taste of Magic, Park Row Magic Academy, number one. So you're combining sort of your love of food with magic. Tell me a little bit about A Taste of Magic. Um, so A Taste of Magic is, I, I think, I don't, it has food in it because I'm a food person, if you know me. So you're going to get food in my books all the time. Yeah. Um, however, I would say it's not the, the plot. heart of it. Yeah. yeah. I would say the heart of it is about Kiana, who learns she's a witch when she turns 12 and then has to enroll in the, this magic academy in the back of her hair salon um, and, you know, grow her understanding of this entire magical heritage and skill that she didn't know she had. Um, and then the school is eventually threatened by redistricting and gentrification and is threatened to be shut down. And so Kiana has to figure out um, how to, what to do about that. <laughs> and so, um, it's, it's an exploration of self and of magic. It's an exploration of, um, self-confidence and understanding the ways that we are special and how we can be special in ways that other people, someone else might not be special and they can be special in ways that we're not special. And it doesn't mean that either one of us is more or less special. It means that we have our own unique abilities and gifts and, and, and those things, um, are unique to us. And I think that, I think it's a, a very affirming read. I, I lean into my middle grade voice is very different from my YA voice. My YAs tend to be very gritty. Um, and my middle grade is like, I, I liken it to reading, reading a taste of magic is what eating warm chocolate chip cookies fresh out the oven feels like. Um, it is definitely fun. It has lots of adventure in it. It has some really fun characters, lots of magic, like magic, magic, magic galore. Um, but then it has so much humor, like laugh out loud 
humor. And it was just such a bomb to me, a bomb to me at a time where I needed that. Every time I would go back to edit it, every single time my editor would send me notes, I would just smile the minute I saw the email because being in that world and in that story is a joy. And so that's what I hope it is for readers after two really hard years is just an opportunity to laugh. I think kids will love it, you know, middle grade readers, but I think teens, parents, like it's a book that families can read together. There's little pieces of humor in there for the parents too. It's just, it's just fun. Um, I'm every, I read more and more middle grade each year and year and I absolutely love it. And good middle grade isn't just for 12 year olds. Because oftentimes there's a really good lesson in there for the parents to learn as well, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, most middle, a lot of the times middle grade is usually dependent on the parents being absent or stupid <laughs> or just it, whatever the situation is where the kids have to sort of like grab this thing on their own and take care of stuff because they can't count on the parents or, or, the, or the adults in their life, right? For for a variety of reasons. So I've said this before and I've said this to other middle grade writers. I take a great sort of privilege in reading these middle grade stories because most often it's it's these kids learning very important life lessons for the first time, right? It's not, it's never like, you know, what, what type of, uh, uh, do you like vanilla or chocolate better? It's usually like the big stuff typically, right? Mm -hmm. The the things that will determine, you know, their high school and adult years, the the, the important lessons in life. So I always take a great privilege in being able to read these moments of these kids' life. These kids are going to turn, go up and be great things. Uh, It's, it's a very honored sort of reading experience for me when I read middle grade and uh, it's always astonishes me when it's done, done well. And I'm, I always enjoy it. And it sounds like sort of, that's kind of where you're headed with, with a taste of magic. Um, this idea that kids are, you know, I, I don't think we still give kids enough credit. I completely agree. Yeah. yeah and I definitely love how in a taste of magic and, you know, there will be multiple books, um, two planned right now, but hopefully more. I do like to put big world situations in front of my characters because that's realistic. Mm-hmm. You know, kids are absorbing a lot more than we realize. Um, and they, they have opinions about a lot more than we realize. And so I like to explore those things um, through their eyes in my middle grade. Um, so I'm very excited. I'm very excited about the series and the magic and the characters. I can't wait for people to, ex- to see the cover. Oh my goodness. Um, that should be revealed sometime early this year as well. Okay. Um, I, I don't know if we're allowed to say this. It's, it was supposed to be spring release, but I think it's end of summer now. August 30th. Okay, perfect. Um, the, the other, and you know, just finally too on that, one thing I really enjoy about it is it gives kids a window to other kids' life because a 12-year-old in Texas will have a uniquely different experience than a 12-year-old in Germany or South Africa or New Zealand, or even another state, right? Um, and what's expected from a 12-year-old here is not expected from a 12-year-old some other parts, the most parts in the world. Mm-hmm. So it's always a great, uh, it's always a great learning experience for, for the kids themselves, I think. It, you know, it's, it's not even just about the entertainment and the magic. And, and of course, it's about seeing themselves on covers or in stories. It's so like, you know, as it turns out, representation fucking matters. <laughs> um, but it's so great that they're able to understand the experience of children, other children their age around the world, isn't it? Yep. Yep. That's exactly what it's about. I cannot wait for that series, Jay. I'm so excited for it. Um, uh, 
yeah, uh, it's going to be great. It's like I said, I'm reading more and more middle grade as these years go on. It's so fun. The older I get, the younger my reading habits are getting. It's very strange. I don't understand it, but it's just the way it goes. Um, okay. So uh, book two, Ashes of Gold. Like as much as we like to think sort of writing is this wonderfully abstract, magical, inspirational thing, you know, like your hands, the books write themselves, right? You just put your hands in front of the keyboard. And they just start moving like divine interventions or something, but there is sort of, it is a process and it, it can be grounded and it can be grueling. It can be, it can even be mechanical, right? There's structure. So when you sit down, I know you, you know, because you liked one of the things we talked about, you like to pay it forward. You like to talk to people about process, uh, you know, and structure, you know, there are these, whatever, seven, six or seven rules to writing a sequel. When you sat down to do this, are these things in your head or, you know, did you have the whole thing mapped out? Talk to me about when you sat down to actually start, you know, typing up the first words to ashes. You know, I had an idea of what, first of all, it was the summer of 2020. Right. So if anybody remembers what was happening then, I was just emotionally (laughs) exhausted. The world was on fire. It was just so much. Um, And I just remember thinking that before I could start the book, I needed to fundamentally understand how Rue needed to grow. And in Wings of Ebony, you know, I've built this heroine who feels pretty much unstoppable, you know? Um, by the end of it, you you have this sense, and this is minorly spoilery, so plug your ears if you don't yeah. want to hear this. At the end, you have this feeling that she could tackle anything. And I, and I wanted the book one to end on that note intentionally, because I think it says something about a, a teenage, a teen that you, you know, you put all this magic and power in their hands and you make them feel larger than life. And then you show, which the sequel does, that they are still capable of growing and that they still have vulnerabilities underneath all of that. I think that there's this beautiful juxtaposition between Rue's strength and her vulnerability. And so that's where book two started for me. It was how is she still vulnerable? How do I want her to grow? And now that she is, most of book two takes place in the magical island. Now that she is no longer steeped in her home community, what challenges does that present? And so out of that, I mapped out my character arc and I do get a bit formulaic and methodical about this part of it, my process. Um, And once I map out the character arc and the plot and I have everything kind of organized in like a, like a long summary synopsis, then I will break it into actual chapters and say, okay, this is what happens in each chapter. And here's a summary of that. And all through all this, all throughout this process, I'm getting feedback from my critique partners. And then once I'm happy with my chapter summaries, I'll start writing it. So once I actually started writing it, um, it only took me about six weeks to get the first draft down. And this book is a little bit longer, 40 pages or so. But that is, that's how it started. It started very formulaically with, you know, what are, what are we challenging Rue to do in this one? So, yeah, like that's, this is sort of what you just, you kind of answered this question a little bit, but maybe if you, you could go expand it a little bit further, maybe with some of the other characters, but, you know, besides like the conflict resolution type of stuff, what was important to you personally for book two? Like the, like, yeah, like the beating heart type of stuff, but, but as a writer, like just as you, for you as well, what did you hope to see in yourself when you sat down to write a second book? Because ideally you'd like to feel like you're getting better as a writer right yeah no absolutely um you know it's and sometimes that's 
that can be hard to pick up on because, you know, a lot of people, and I know you know this about other authors, sort of like whether it's a duology or trilogy, have the the whole thing mapped out. And then it's kind of just, then they kind of just cut it up two or three ways. Right. So what was important to you personally for book two from a story perspective, and then for you personally as a writer? Well, I think sequels are hard because, you know, you don't have the newness of book one going for you. Right. Right. So when readers come back to your world, in my opinion, I think one of the greatest risks is you don't want it to feel like more of the same. I wanted people to finish book two just as thrilled and um, enthralled as they did with book one. So I set out, I literally made a bullet pointed list of the things I wanted to do in the sequel, like um, how I wanted the sequel to come across. I wanted it to come across twistier. I wanted to have really shocking twists. I wanted it to have more romance. I wanted it to have way more magic. I wanted it to have more action. I wanted to have a little bit of creepiness to it. Um, And I wanted it to have a few fan favorites from the first book, but some new characters that you can really get invested in. Um, And that was my, that was my list. I was very tactical about it. (laughs) It's rage. I'm sorry. I'm just like, I don't know if anyone knows this or not, but like Burger King has this button. It's called heavy all. I don't know if you guys know this and everyone knows this. So like, if you order a Whopper or any type of burger, sometimes you can say like, heavy mayo or heavy lettuce or whatever they'll so they'll put extra on it and they because they charge you for it but they have a button that says heavy all so that means that means extra of everything that's on that burger and that's what you did you press the heavy all button it sounds like yeah exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you're the burger king of writing it's great um and, and so and yeah that, i mean i can uh, having read the book it's all those things are, are sort of dialed up. There's no doubt about it, but um, I'm not going to let you get away without answering the writing question to, to, as a storyteller, because one of the things that about Ashes of Gold to me that jumps right out, um, the second act in particular to me is, it feels like you're flexing a lot, like your storytelling muscles. Um, <laughs> be, be, um, and, you know, I know you and I have talked about this a little bit offline. Um, you, you take, Rue and, and her team and certain people sort of on on a uh, I don't know how to describe it journey road trip fact finding mission it's kind of all these things lumped into one but they, they're out they're out there and they're they're trying to figure some shit out and I, th- I think it's a more methodical approach the second act it's my favorite mm-hmm. act of, of both books um, oh thank you I think that the detail that you put into the second act of this book it's beautiful to read. It's methodical. Yeah, the pace is a little slower. You you kind of dial it down a little bit, and I so I think mm-hmm. you just it's I think it's genius that you did that. It's like a like a it's like a sandwich, <laughs> an Oreo cookie yeah. or something like the cream. Yeah, the good because that's no, the that good, was intentional. That that's was the good stuff to me. It's like yeah, like the, the the second act, the ex like the the exposition, the the the, the character arc, the the growth, the information, just the way you you map it out and pace it to me. That's like that's the good stuff for me. That's what I enjoy. Big action mm-hmm. stuff, great, yeah, wonderful. Big uh, love scenes, the love swoony stuff. That's all. <laughs> Listen, it's great. I, I'm not going to say I don't love it, but I, it, I do. But to me, like th- the second act is the good stuff for me. That to me, like if I was going to, and you, if, if your answer to my question earlier was, well, I don't really knew, know if I've grown as a writer. So I would say, I would point, no, to no, the, I, I, I have... would point, I would point to the second <laughs> act of this book. That's what I would, yeah, Well, so, thank you. Yeah. No. So one of my favorite things to tell myself and other writers is your first book should be your worst book, theoretically. Because your craft is growing the more and more books that you write. So 
You would um, hate to peak I, early with your first. <laughs> yeah, you would hate that. Yeah, yeah. True. Yeah. It went pretty yeah. well the first time. Yeah. Um, but I definitely wanted. So when I go into a new book, this is something I, I don't think I've ever shared publicly, but I am happy to mention. When I go into a book, I usually have an idea of what area of my craft I want to challenge. Right. Um, and when I was going into this book, I was a little limited with what I could do because it's not like starting a new story. But I wanted to explore world building in a fantasy setting because so much of book one um, has to take place in East Row, which is great. Like I love a contemporary setting, but I love writing magic. And so what I really wanted to do in the sequel was give a lot more magic on the page, explore a lot more magic and really open up Gazan and challenge myself to world build in an organic way and to plot twists that were really satisfying and shocking. So that was how, that was sort of my writerly challenge going into the book. And like I said, since I wasn't starting a new book, I was, I couldn't just like start all over with, you know, I had to work within the confines of what I'd set up in book one, but my goal was to really challenge myself to, to make gray characters, challenge myself to world build um, a magical Island that you could really see touch and taste and really just steep into the history of that, that world and immerse readers in a book that has like a shocking, satisfying finish that really holds up to book one. Like I love the series where people rave about books two and three more than the first one, because the first one obviously had to be good to warrant a two and a three. So I just think it's amazing when writers are able to craft stories that are even better and even more satisfying or just as the first one. And so that was, that was really what I was trying to do. And I mean, to be fully transparent, then I have nine contracted books, only two are, you know, uh, like three, I guess, you know, like right. three is on its way to the world. But the, the one, the other one that hasn't been announced yet that I'm working on, I actually just turned in the draft of it yesterday. Just reading through that as my first completed draft is just night and day, even from ashes and a taste of magic. And I just, I love being able to continue to explore my craft and study my craft. And I just, I'm excited to write more and see, see where it goes and just continue to challenge myself and grow. I have so much to learn just as a writer. I'm so new to all of it. Um, that's great to hear. And uh, I think objectively Ashes of Gold is a better book than Wings of Ebony and uh, on almost every level. And then, you know, that's hard to say without sounding like a knock on Wings because it's not. Wings is great. But I mean, just to your point, um, it feels like this ashes feels like somebody who's who's really fucking pounding away on the keys with 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 a certain level of confidence in themselves in their ability to tell a story. Um, and that's and that's funny because it said that because it's I have to go back and think probably, but I'm trying to remember it's probably 50 50 where, you know, I would say the second book was better than the first or the first book is still the best one of the series or whatever the case may be. But I think, I think I feel like it's probably around the 50 50 mark if I really sat down and thought about it, but um, ashes is, uh, is really, really, really great. And I love the fact that Thank you. I love the fact that you felt that while you were writing it, that that's awesome to me. And that's of course only going to just carry you forward and, and even one of the things you just said too about, you know, because I know it's so important to you about craft and all these things and and sort of, I was reading, just sitting here waiting earlier, I was reading this six week curriculum thing you put together is really cool um, on your website. Tell me, uh, let's spend a minute on that. 
Okay. Um, so I'm an educator first. Well, mm-hmm. I used to be. <laughs> yeah. So my teacher had always slips on. And so when I was creating this book, I find that a lot of times contemporary books um, have an easier time finding their way in classrooms and then fantasy sometimes. Right. And so it's really important for me when I was crafting Wings of Ebony to make this book that was teachable. Um, I wrote it in 2018. It came out in 2021 after the summer of 2020 when it was just painfully apparent how relevant it was to real times. And I think fantasy gives students uh, um, a level of like, they make these topics that can be tough to talk about, like racism, privilege. They get, it, it makes it easier to discuss, I think, and dissect when it's one step removed, um, particularly for kids. Sometimes it's harder to engage with some of those topics more directly, especially if they're like emotionally drained as many people are, were around that time. And so um, I wanted sure that teachers were talking about this book in the classroom, but I know from being an educator, giving somebody a discussion guide is not, is not even a drop in the bucket when it comes to what it takes to teach a book. To teach a book, you need a whole curriculum. You need lesson plans, you need assessments, you need um, all of these pieces. And so I wasn't, I wasn't satisfied with just the typical discussion guide. So I wanted to go beyond that. And so, I, I mean, I do have a master's in educational administration and curriculum development. So I sat down and I developed a curriculum. It took me about a year. And then I had a master teacher in New York, a wonderful woman by the name of Danielle Monarch at um, American School of Heroes. I think it's PS 137, I think. Um, but um, she was kind enough. I hired her to comb through it and make sure it was aligned because I, I had been out, I've been out of classroom for a long time. So I wanted someone whose head was like right there in the game to be able to look it over and, and really tighten it up. And then at the time, since we were in this virtual world, she translated it to digital format so that kids who were at home, teachers could just send them a link to the digital workbook and they could click through it and still do it as if they were in class. That was just really important to me. Um, and I'm very excited to hear that there are, gosh, so there's 50 or more classrooms that taught Wings of Ebony this last year. Um, I've lost count, to be honest, but I'm really, really grateful that that exists. And I wrote that book with intention to bridge those conversations. You know, what's amazing about that is it gives it a certain degree of longevity as well. Um, Because a lot of times, you know, art is essentially process, you know, once a book is written and out in the world, it's just a, I mean, it can be just a thing, right? Like I can, I could, I'm holding it right now. I mean, I could just throw it out if I wanted to. (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't dare, but uh, uh, that's so amazing that what you just said, you know, 50, 50 plus. Uh, it's being taught like that you know that means you know wings of ebony is is now being injected into the into the dna of of young people's minds into their bloodstreams now and that's going to carry forward in a way that that just a standard book release isn't going to do right i mean this idea that art is forever i mean that really i mean when you make it educational when you make how amazing is that just spend a minute talking about that like how amazing and it could be any book really that any book that's made its way into the into the school system that that a work of fiction can become part of educate part of the educational system yeah i mean to be very transparent i mean ultimately that's what it's about for me i i don't um you know, I, I, by the time this airs, this news will be public. So I'll just say it now, but my in-person launch is um, being m- moved to virtual because of the whole COVID thing. 
And I was talking to the bookstore owner, a wonderful, lovely woman. This is the first bookstore in my neighborhood growing up, the neighborhood that inspired East Row. This is a Black-owned bookstore and just um, very precious to my heart. My launch was being planned by the bookstore in a school. And there were several schools that were planning to attend, um, schools busing in to attend this launch. And I remember just having this conversation with her the other day, like, I just want to go forward with it. I realized that, you know, it's looking like we're not going to be able to, but to let down all those kids, like she was super apologetic that, you know, if we have to shut down, you know, I just, I'm so sorry. And we'll make sure that we highlight your book on this. And I was like, listen, I don't, I'm not there for shine. I don't want to disappoint those kids. Mm -hmm. Those kids who may never see an author in person or um, read a book and be able to meet the person who wrote it and like who have questions or who related to Rue. Like it's more important to me that I get to like be in the same space and share the same air with those, those brilliant minds. Like that's, that's what it's about. Um, Mm -hmm. I could, I could care less about uh, whether or not I get my moment in the sun. Like it's, it's about the babies for me. It's about their minds. I love your analogy about injecting into their veins because I wrote it with the intention to hopefully be a very equipping sort of read to help people who come to this duology as a window and not necessarily a mirror understand a little bit more about their privilege than they did before. And for those that come to it as a mirror to have a, just a very validated reading experience to recognize that they're not responsible for other people's not knowing they're not, they don't need to carry the burden of other people's ignorance or um, put that work to educate others on their shoulders and just giving kids, um, giving kids this sort of context of discourse around these very difficult topics, what I wanted the book to do. So that was the whole point for that series. And I'm, I am so grateful that it's making its way into the hands of kids. It's a um, project lit selection as well. And I know there are project lit schools. In fact, I kick off my launch every, well, so I say every year, I've only had two books, but um, last with wings, I sort of made it a tradition and we're doing it again this year to kick off my launch with project lit. So it's a private event that I do the night before my book releases with like hundreds of teachers. And we talk about the themes in the book. We talk about how it's relevant to class, how it's relevant to today, what cross-discipline opportunities there are um, all of those things. So, I mean, that's my favorite part. There's a reason that that's the first event I do. And it's the first event I want to do is talk to teachers. And that's sort of one of the things I want to talk about here. So again, this will be like a tiny spoiler warning guys. So we might, we might do a little, uh, wings of ebony. It's, it's more of it. We'll just, it'll be sort of like a wrap up of sort of like, you know, this, what happened last week on wings of ebony type of thing. But, uh, yeah, it, just to wrap up that point is, you know, art becomes life because there's some stuff and you know that happens in this series where rue does a lot of what you just said and like pays it forward in a very tangible way and in a way that becomes systematic and that's so important when you're fighting systematic oppression and systematic abuse and state abuse it's important to you know fight it systematically in a lot of ways too um and that's what you know that's part of what you're doing in real life and that's sort of part of what rue is trying to do i won't say whether she succeeds or not but she uh is definitely trying to do it and it's one of the many things i love about rue and 
it's one of the many things I love about you is, you, you know, Rue or you, neither of you let someone or something else define who you are, what you are and what you plan or intend to do to fight these dark forces in the world. And that very much carries, you know, that is you and that has obviously carried its way into this story. So um, speaking of the story, give me a last time on Wings of Ebony type of thing, sort of like wrap up Wings of Ebony. If, you know, uh, you can let loose on a couple of little spoilers if you want to tell us sort of where we're last, you know, where we left our characters last time we saw them. Sure. So, so Rue basically goes to East Row to protect, to leave a gift for her sister and things just snowball out of hand. She ends up using magic in person. Um, the magical law enforcement called patrol are notified. And what, what ensues is a pursuit of the magical in the magical world of Rue. And so Rue initially tries to sort of run um, from it. But when she finds out that they plan to kill the person that she touched, because when you touch, it transfers memories, which is her little sister, the, uh, the stakes raise for her considerably. And so instead of just kind of running from the consequences, she decides that she's going to protect her sister, whatever it takes. <clears throat> so she goes back to East Row <clears throat> and her and her sister are trying to puzzle out what's going on and who's after them. Because when they arrive immediately, there's someone on their tail. And it looks like it's not just the magical um, law enforcement. It looks like it's someone in the real world or in the, in the human, the non-magic world after them as well. And so after some mystery puzzling, they realize that the person after them in the magic world and the person after them in the non-magic world are the same people. And so she begins to realize that this sort of gang drug violent presence in her community that has plagued her home and that it's been flooding high schools in her area with, with drugs um, is being run by this ma the magical person who's second in command um, on the magical island. And so she takes the fight back to Gazan to confront him. Um, and <clears throat> she's immediately halted by her father, who she hates because she grew up with her single mom. So she always sort of harbored resentment towards him for being for not being there because her her life growing up was you know, harder. They didn't have a lot of things. Her mom always struggled financially. And so she definitely has some resentment um, towards all of that falling on her mother's shoulders. She has a, a saying that's you make a way out of no way. And so she feels like her father did not try to make a way out of no way that he gave up. Uh, but when she shows up in Kazan to sort of confront <clears throat> the situation, she's um, intercepted by her father who tells her, you know, you need to know where you come from. And he takes the secret mountain on the island and in that secret mountain, um, let me back up and just clarify that on this island, there are only two brown people, Rue and her dad. No one else is brown. Everyone is pale complected. They're called grays. So anyway, he takes her to this mountain and inside this mountain is an entire community in hiding of brown skinned people. And she finds out that the island used to be theirs, but the person in charge of the island, the first in command, the chancellor colonized the island and they went into hiding because they were dying off of a sickness at the time. Um, and she doesn't really know exactly if those two things are connected, but that's just sort of the reality is that her father was running to try to take cover in the mountain with the rest of his people. And he was, he was intercepted by the chancellor as he was colonizing the island and decided to take him and raise him as his own. So the chancellor raises Rue's father 
<clears throat> and believes that he's like his own son. He was plotting his entire life to figure out how to <clears throat> bring them out of hiding. Um, their ancestors stored all of this magic in these two gold cuff bracelets. And um, Asim, Rue's father, went to the human world to hide one of those bracelets just so that they were separated. So there's one on the island and there's one in the human world. He hides it with the woman he falls in love with, which is Rue's mother. So through this process, Rue inherits those cuffs and has to figure out how to get them to work. Um, so in the big showdown battle at the end, she finally is able to get her cuffs to work because the, the, the thing that she has to accept sort of internally for them to really bind to her is she has to accept that she is her ancestors chosen, that she is in fact uh, Ghazani, which is the magical island. She is so steeped in her identity in East Row, she rejects her, the other side of her heritage, largely because she rejects her father. She's very angry at him. So she has to forgive him and she has to embrace her full heritage and her destiny and her identity. And then the cuffs answer to her. And she is victorious in the end, <clears throat> the very end, my favorite chapter. She takes the, the person in trouble, not the guy who colonized the island, but the one, the second in command, who was puppet mastering drugs and violence in East Row. She takes him to East Row. She sits him in front of her community apartments and she puts a, a foot, uh, I'm sorry, a sign at his foot that blatantly says he's a, a racist because. And then she gives him a truth serum and he has to admit why he did what he did and all the things that he did. And um, the media is there and the world is watching and you get to see for the first time, you get to see justice served to the person who's actually behind the crime instead of all of these like scapegoats that her community has been for so long. And then the minute the, the, minute the book ends, there's trouble, in, uh, there's trouble in Gazan. The chancellor is marching on the mountain because he knows that the um, Ghazani native people have survived and Rue takes off to go back and it picks up literally right there. Um, yeah. It's funny because yeah, you don't, you don't kill the, the boss boss. You get, you get rid of the, the mid-level boss <laughs> sort of if it was like a video game or something. Right. Um, and yeah, she's scarlet letters, scarlet letters. And basically, um, you know, of course, yeah, there's a sense, there's a sense of it's, uh, you know, the, the battle was won perhaps, but the war isn't over type of idea. And there's, she suffers some losses, right? And she, you know, not everyone makes it to book two, um, which was tough, tough, tough to read. It's still hard to read those, that final yeah. chapter for that reason. Um, she does suffer an incredible loss, actually. Uh, you know, as, as, as sort of victorious as the moment is, it's, it's fleeting in a way, isn't it? But um, one of the things you do with this, with Ashes now, which I think is great. So one of these like so-called rules of sequels, right? You're not supposed to pick up exactly where you left off. Um, and you start Ashes with a time jump, a flashback. What would you call it? I don't know. Whatever, whatever yeah, you, it's you know. a prologue. It's a flashback yeah. to before the island was colonized. Um, talk about your decision to do that because I think that's genius. I love it when books do that um, because you know, I know there's like, I know these rules aren't hard rules, right? You're not supposed to do this. You're supposed to do that, yada, yada, yada. But I personally just really, really, really enjoy in a duology or a trilogy or longer when books do this, um, when it does, because you're still sort of, because 
you have to imagine that somebody's reading these books back to back, right? We don't, I know, you know, cause I get them early and I have to wait a year, year and a half to read the next <laughs> book or whatever. Right? So, you know, I've had more than enough time to process what happened in book one, but imagine if you were to read, uh, do you write your books this way? Imagining someone is sitting down and reading both because that's what that tells that tells me yes when you write a book with a start the, the second book with a time jump or a prologue or, or, a, or a flashback so you're allowing that person to sort of come to terms with what just happened in book one which is fucking chaotic and and hard to read and there's some sad shit going on now you come you, you sort of take a step back take take us back in time or maybe even ahead in time whatever the situation is let us gather our thoughts learn a bit of information and then thrust us back into the main storyline does that sound right yeah, I mean, for me, it was about, <clears throat> you know, because we went back and forth on to whether or not to pull the prologue down to the very last second. My other night. No, I love prologues, though. <laughs> yeah, we decided to keep it. But um, she, ultimately, what was really important to me, you have to understand what is being lost. Yeah. You have to walk through the shoe. I could tell you in a backstory paragraph, oh, before the island was colonized, it was like this. But that's not like living and seeing through the eyes of this little girl who <clears throat> did not grow up in a world where her people had to hide in a mountain. And so for me, I wanted to just make sure readers were invested in understanding what was lost. And that seemed like the right place to start it. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler. I mean, you basically, yeah, because you've already said most of this book takes place, you know, back, uh, back in Gizan, right? So you're basically trying to let us know more about the history of what's happened there, not East row. So um, that's the focus of the flashback is, is what's happening there. So that's not really a spoiler to say that. I think we're allowed to say that. I don't want to say exactly what happens, but um, this has to do with sort of this more approach you take with this book where you do, you're fleshing out, you know, events that we were shown maybe just glimpses of and wings you are, you are now fully fleshing out, right. Which is the idea of the longer, the more pages you have to tell a story, you should be fleshing stuff out, hopefully with, with added detail and even a little bit more gravitas in some instances. And a lot of these characters are given room to breathe in a lot of instances as well. And, but you still find the time to introduce a bunch of new characters. Um, I don't want to say anything about Sierra and them, but cause it blew me away. You know, you add, you add this whole other sort of, uh, I don't know. You just add this entire other layer to the story, to the history of what's happening here with certain characters that we thought we already knew, or we were only going to know so much. And then you sort of add all this detail with people like Seer and these, and there's all these other storylines. Was that, or was people, was characters like this and that sort of that sideline in it from the beginning, or did that sort of come about during the process? You know, some of the twists came about during the process, but I knew yeah. the history of the island before I wrote book one. Right. I just fundamentally felt like they were two different things that needed their own books to tackle. So I kind mm. of separated them as villains and decided to tackle one in the first book and deal with racism directly and then tackle the other one in the second book yeah. um, and deal with colonization. But I always knew, you know, how the, how the island was created and like some of the ugly realities of that history. Um, but some of the relationships, which I'll just leave at that. Yeah. Um, those evolved more organically as I evaluated how I wanted Rue to grow and what ways I wanted her to be challenged. I looked at my characters and tried to decide, okay, who can challenge her in this way? And what, you know, what role does this person play in their life? And I wanted to explore 
making characters that are not all good or bad. I wanted to explore characters that are kind of gray too, because I feel like in situations like these, a lot of times people make very difficult choices and neither of those choices feel right. Um, but based on the information that they have, they're, they're doing what makes sense to them given the trauma that they've experienced. And I didn't want to excuse it or call it right or wrong. I just wanted to show the reality, the complexity there. <clears throat> It's, it's so effective, and this sort of has a lot to do with the second act that I talked about, where, again, you sort of, uh, Rue meets these people, and, you know, we're not sure about them at first, and then we learn some things about them, and there's a, a storyline with one of these new characters in particular, which ties to a character we already have met in book one, and, and, and it's so effective, and it's so well done, and it has such a... <sighs> It's hard to talk about with us for so I won't, but it's something that I really dig in stories and you did it. And I was so happy. I had a huge, stupid smile on my face. Um, speaking of huge, stupid smiles, uh, everyone's favorite ally breathes back, of course. Um, this isn't even a backdoor situation. That's what I love about these books. Like breeze is straight up allyship, you know, capital A quote unquote deal here, right? This is you sort of teaching us people who try to be allies, you know, how to be an ally, you know, in, in, in the best way and in, 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 in the definition of the word. Um, talk about Brie a little bit. Yeah, Brie is, um, you know, I didn't want to paint Brie in a perfect light. No, of course It's no. important to me that, that Brie is realistic. And so I look to challenge her in book one. And then in book two, you know, I don't let her off the hook. No. Nope. I don't let her off the hook. And I wanted to paint real relationships, you know, so readers are going to get a, a good taste of that as well. She's hard on herself, think, though, too, right? Like, she doesn't let herself off the hook. I mean, that's you not letting her off the hook because you wrote it. But, um, you know, she's I, she's I sort of one of these people. That personal accountability. Piece, right. You know, like, it's right. her job to do that. Um, she's one of these people who, like, says something and then immediately analyzes it and be like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> she's, right, she's one of those people. And Rue is so patient with her because of, you know, the book's, Rue says it herself, she's a keeper because she's just, she's so loyal and she, you know, is always trying to do the right thing, but she's never going to always do or say the right thing, but she's so loyal. It's, it's just one of those characters where it jumps off the page at you because you're like, oh, okay, that's, you know, Brie is most of us in that situation, right? Where we're, you know, a lot of people are still trying to do the right thing, but don't always do the right thing. So um, it's, it's such a great uh, character in that sense. It has such a real world application, right? Um, so uh, of course, there's no question, you know, one thing that's sort of absolutely taken over the narrative in a lot of ways is, Jamal and versus Julius. Uh, of course, as you know, I'm a loud and proud team Jamal. Um, you have never revealed what you are. I know you've said that you and your editor, I think, are on opposite teams. I suspect your team Julius. Um, you've said. I wouldn't you, even confirm. Nor no, I know I. you. I'm not asking you. To, I know you won't reveal it. I'm, I will ask. Do, do you think you'll ever reveal it? That's maybe that's something I could ask you. And yes. Yes. You one will. day. One day. And, I don't know when. Um. um and I mean, I'm just going to say, I guess it depends, it depends what side you're on. You're either going to be maybe happy or maybe not happy, I guess is the only way I can put it. Um, that's how love triangles go. That's how love triangles work, right? Like ultimately, uh, you know, I've said this to you before and I, I feel this way about Tracy's, you know, the Legendborn series. Um, 
you know, it's, it's, it's great having, I'm team Labrador in that, in that book, by the way, I'm, I'm team Nick. Um, Cause if I like my, uh, if, if I'm going to have amazing, strong, beautiful black women lead characters, I want the white guys to be just re- tr- true to life. I want them to be boring and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and that's what Nick is. He's just a Labrador. He's just a, he's just an obedient boy, but uh and I, but, but really my, my for sure strong position though, is, and I feel this way, you know, same with Legendborn, same with, with, with Rue is, you know, I almost feel like there's nobody good enough for Rue. Like I'm team Rue at the end of the day, I am team Rue. So whatever she decides is, is what I'm, is what I'm going to be okay with. Yeah. Um, so, you know, wh- whether she chooses Jamal or Julius or nobody, ultimately at the end of the day, I just want Rue to be happy. Um, I will say, and I know you are very aware of this dynamic and I guess I'm, you know, we, we're not going to say what happens. Uh, I was surprised and happy. I'll say that um, with what you did. And I, it was very emotional. And I think both teams <laughs> are going to be very happy is what I'm going to say. That's all I'll say. Um, but I know you were aware of this. So when you're writing these scenes, do you, do you just have like a big dumb grin on your face? <laughs> like just understanding that the reaction of people is so strong. You know, I love that. First of all, for me, it's like, when have I seen a love triangle between two black love interests like this? Where one, particularly where one of them is this tattoo covered kid from the hood. That's right. Who has a, yep. his, who has a, yep. uh, a record. That boy is never centered in books as, as a love interest option in right. a love triangle. So the fact that there's like all this love and just reader enthusiasm about these two boys, just that for me is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, you know, to be very honest with you, I wasn't sure who she was going to pick or like, I wasn't sure who Rue's true love was going to be until I wrote it. I had to just let Rue take over. Yeah. Um, like I, I, I think, like I said, I think both teams, both ships will be happy. Um, but there's a, there's a, there's a catch there, but I won't say, <laughs> but I'll just say both teams are going to be happy. Um, my issue all along with Julius has been, and I don't, I like whatever he, he does for a living and, and all these other things. And uh, I could care less. I, I think Julius is a good dude, but as far as just like love and romance is strictly concerned, don't get second chances with me. <laughs> so that's why I'm team Jamal. Cause he sort of has that, that sort of fresh, yeah. that, that clean slate uh, appeal for me. Right. So I am not a big second chance person as far as that goes. Um, uh, it's, you know, if I was like, if I needed to pick one to, you know, like a ride or die situation or what is say ride or dead ride or, ride <laughs> ride or, or dead, dead. <laughs> yeah. um i'd have a hard time picking because they're both loyal and great and and will will you know throw themselves into a fire for you right so there's no no issues there whatsoever but just from a strictly like snuggling on the couch making out situation you don't get second chances with me so that's why i think i'm with team jamal ultimately but uh, yeah. um that's just because i read too much ya probably but um <laughs> Anyways, um, so uh, yeah, Ashes of Gold provide, yeah, definitely provides some respite from the chaos. I think that was book one. There's a more methodical approach this time. I think you've even said that. 
this is a more, like I said, a more, a more full throated and robust story from beginning to end. It's got complex new characters. Of course, all our favorites are back. Um, uh, and a host of sort of like you really up the stakes as far as obstacles for Rue as well. You know, Jelani, like it's, it's, it, the stakes get higher. And just when you think she's got, you know, people she can trust, you throw in some twists and turns, of course. And, 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 and like, and you do all this and somehow bring this story to its rightful conclusion. And mm-hmm. it's, it's so amazing to me. And then again, that just speaks to just how great a writer I think you are and, oh, uh, and, you. and your craft yeah. as a, as a storyteller. Um, <laughs> it's it, so my, I guess my final question is just ultimately it, of course, it, I guess it matters what I think or the public thinks because you need books to sell. It is a business, it, you know, like it just is. But ultimately, you have to be happy with this story because you live with these characters more than anybody. So are you happy? I am. You know, if I were to write this duology over, I'd obviously do a lot of things differently just because my craft, grass with the craft has changed. You know, there's just other pieces of the world that'd be fun to explore, but you can only do what you, you can only do what you can with what you have at the time. And I think that Wing set out what I wanted her to do. And I think that Ashes um, will also set out. I mean, there's going to be, it's a love triangle. There are going to be readers who are not happy. Like, it's just, it is what it is. And then if you read any of my books, I'm going to make you cry. Sometimes those are happy tears though. So, yep. Yep. but um, my books are always going to make you emotional. That's just, that's just me. That's how I write. So I'm excited for this second book to be in the world. And I'm excited to keep telling more stories. I feel very fortunate to have that opportunity. Um, JL, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Um, you obviously, and everyone who knows me knows I'm a huge fan. So it was very nice to be able to talk to you again about it. Um, I can't wait. We'll have to obviously have to reconnect later this year when, um, Taste of Magic comes out. Um, wingsofebony.com, um, is where you'll find most things about Wings of Ebony. Authorjl.com is another spot where you can really look into that. A lot of her cool curriculum ideas and stuff for teachers and librarians, which is really cool. I recommend checking that out. Of course, you're on all the social medias. Your um, your rollout week there, man. You've got some great people to talk to. <laughs> like that, just um, I mean, the one the one day with Nicola and Alicia and Kaylin and, and yes, uh, and Alicia. You know like, that that event. We I like I I made that event. I was like, I was talking to my publicity team, and I was like, look, I um, this book is you know book one really centers Rue's trauma and her mm-hmm. and in book two I made an intentional pivot to focus more on black on on love and how you have to understand black love in order to empathize with black black pain like it, it just isn't you can't have one without the other like you have to understand what we're missing you have to right. understand what's being taken from us and so in this book ultimately I think ashes is a story about love like self-love and love of others feeling worthy of love which is a whole nother you know sort of nuance around this idea of love and so I wanted to do a big event that centered love. And I was like, well, why don't we just do something huge? And my publicity team looked into it and they found out that all of the regional bookseller associations wanted to collectively put it on together. Like mm. it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bookstores. Um, and so we put it together and I reached out to some of my dear friends that I really respect and love in the space. Um, and I was like, Hey, let's do a black love panel to kick to end my tour and kick off black history month because yep. in black history month, we should be talking about black history, which encompasses black love. Mm-hmm. 
It uh, so that's Wednesday, February second at eight p.m. Eastern, presented virtually as a nationwide collaboration of regional independent bookseller associations. And yeah, it's got yourself with Nicola Yoon, Kaylin Theron, Alicia Dow, and Elise Bryant. Like it's just that's I mean as stacked a lineup as it gets. So um, it's I'm I am such a fan of of all five of you and your books are all over my shelves so it's such a so amazing um but your whole next week too looks uh i mean ayana and bridget and kimberly latrice and alexandra it's just stacked what a great week you've got planned so everyone check that out on social media and in the websites i already mentioned and uh go buy ashes of gold and wings of ebony if you haven't already so jl thank you so much and please enjoy the rest of your day and have a great release week there you have it another episode of everything is canon all wrapped up Huge thanks to Jay for stopping by. Make sure you check out authorjl.com or wingsofebony.com to be up to date with all the launch events and the latest information. And of course, you can always find her on all the social media feeds under AuthorJL. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen and head on over to cinelinks.com for the latest movie, TV, books, and gaming news. Please continue to be safe out there and good to each other. Bye for now. And, and, and. And there's no objection. <laughs>